Well, I'm delighted to be back at Oxford, and, uh, and I should say, uh, before I start, um, I didn't quite properly introduce myself as, as all of you did. So, uh, I'm Chris Orr, I'm a political scientist, primarily at Penn State University. Um, and as Steve mentioned, uh, there are a couple relevant bits for, for why I'm here. Um, I've taught for a number of years at the Summer Institute at the uh, ICPSR at the University of Michigan. Uh, that's primarily geared towards PhD students, as you probably know. Uh, I've also taught um, undergraduate methods for about 20 or so years uh, at the various institutions that I've worked at. Um, and I'm currently the associate director of something called the Big Data Social Science Initiative, which is a cross-disciplinary NSF-supported institute for graduate training uh, that we, we started a couple years ago at Penn State. Uh, my colleague, Burke Monroe, is the director of that. It's primarily housed in political science, uh, but we have people from geography, information science, psychology, economics, sociology, uh, computer science, and a range of other fields. So it's, it's a very broad, uh, cross-disciplinary sort of thing. Um, largely, uh, in, in that capacity, um, I've, I've been spending a lot of time in the world of big data for the past few years. Um, and, and as you have probably realized by now, big data is big. Um, if you get on the web and you look around, the, 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 the corporate world industry has companies starting up every day that are offering uh, big data and usually paired with some word like analytics or perhaps most nebulously solutions. Um, the nonprofit sector and the government sector see increasing calls for data, greater data transparency, data availability, and, and things of that nature. And of course, in the academy, as evidenced by our, our institute at Penn State and many others like it, um, we've seen a proliferation of data science and, and big data themed programs, uh, degree programs, and, and certificate programs, and things of that nature. So it's something that, that has very much been uh, not just in sort of academic and, and professional circles, but also in the public consciousness. Um, this is a, a little trend of, of the, the phrase big data you, that I pulled from Google Trends. Uh, you can see starting at about 2012 or so, uh, it's something that has just taken off and really shows no signs of, of slowing down. Um, in fact, it, it's become so ubiquitous and, and such a widely used um, term that some people have argued that, that the phrase big data itself is sort of past its expiration date, right? Or, or to, use a, um, to use a phrase that we, we like to use in the United States, the big data has jumped the shark. That it is no, it has become so ubiquitous that it's become almost self-parody. It doesn't, it doesn't really have any any uh, important substantive meaning, um, which actually raises kind of an interesting question: How do you know when a when a social phenomenon has jumped the shark? I'm not going to say, by the way, what jumped the shark is. It, it just uh, ask me in the Q and A if you're not familiar with that, but um, or you can Google it on your phones or whatever. Um, but there's, it is an interesting question. How do we know when something has jumped the shark? And I've sort of got a theory about maybe what some indicators are, right? So, so one thing that, that we see in the contemporary world is that um, when something has sort of become so ubiquitous that it's, it's, uh, it's no longer kind of interesting or useful, um, there's a rush on the part of journalists who work in that area to declare it dead. That, that so-and-so is dead. And in fact, the Google search that I did yesterday for the phrase big data and dead turns up 65,000 results. Big data has been proclaimed as dead since sometime in about mid-2012. Uh, so it's been dead for two and a half years by some accounts. Um, another thing you can look for as it's sort of a piece of evidence of whether something has, has jumped the shark is whether people are beginning to openly mock it in public fora. Right? So for example, there's a wonderful website called Pictures of Big Data. Um, which it's a Tumblr site actually that collects images of how people represent the concept of big data on websites and in other public documents and things of that nature. Um, the the web page itself has this as the title page, and of course, um, the, the image that they chose to indicate how silly this is is a is a large sort of Sauron-esque looking eye that has somehow managed to transform what is arguably otherwise binary data into data that contains the number two yes. in various places. Um, as a sort of the, the silliness of this. Uh, all, all of the all representations of big data are blue with numbers and lens flare, as he says. So um, whether big data is useful or whether it's jumped the shark as sort of a term, I think, or, or as, a, as a sort of social phenomenon, um, can be debated. I think I, I tend to think of the phrase or the term as something that 
retains some usefulness, not so much as a, as a discrete thing, but more as sort of a perspective, uh, or maybe a kind of a generalized approach to how we can think about learning from data and, and uh, sort of extracting information from data. And that's the way in which I'll use that, the phrase today, and, and hopefully, probably by the end of the lecture, you'll have a bit of an idea of what I mean by that. So when I'm talking about big data, what that, what that, uh, what that approach kind of means. Um, I wanted to organize my talk kind of around three different guiding principles, or, or three different maybe pieces or phenomena um, that, that are all relevant, I think, for, for teaching. And, and um, in various places, I think the teaching implications will be fairly obvious, and in others, I'll try to be a, a little bit more explicit about drawing connections. Um, but the obvious place to start when you're talking about big data is with data itself, uh, and, and sort of what the implications of big data as it is for the, over the past 10 years are for the way we think about data, the way we gather data or extract data, and, and so forth. Um, and then the second thing is, is, of course, once we have the data, what do we do with it? And what tools do we use to analyze the data? And how have the changes over the past decade or so um, altered the way that we do or could uh, actually analyze data and learn from it? And finally, I'll talk a little bit at the end about kind of the philosophy of big data. And, and in particular, the differences between the way that we typically teach our undergraduates and our PhD students about data analysis and the sort of big data perspective. And then those differences, I think, are useful partially because I think we can, we can learn from them. We can, we can begin to integrate some of those insights into the way we do things, but also because they, they are, in many instances, quite different from what we do. Um, and that allows us, by taking that perspective, to turn a bit of a critical lens on ourselves and to look at what we do from kind of an outsider's perspective and maybe see it in a way that we hadn't seen it before. So I'll start with data. Um, we're all here, I, I, I'm glad to hear everyone here is at least nominally or at one time or another was interested in or, or was involved in teaching uh, statistics and quantitative methods to undergraduates because it means that I can pretty much assume that you all know about data. You all sort of know what data are, what they look like, right? This is something like what we think of when we think of data. Uh, this is data on my family. My wife's name is Zarya, my son's name is Evan. Um, this is a little data set on three people and three variables, right? And this is, this is what we think of when we think of data. I would imagine everyone in this room, we're all, we're all social scientists, this is what we think of when we think of data. Um, this is not what a large number of very potentially influential and important people who work with data every single day think of when they think of data. Um, even something where the information content is identical. Right? Um, if, we, if we go to a, a different building on campus or a different department, um, we might encounter someone that they think of data and it looks like this. Right? Identical information, but represented in a very different way. The format is very different. Right? Or perhaps they think of it like this, the XML version of that. Right. Again, the, the informational content is identical to what it was before, um, but the way that we think about the data is different. I wanted, to, I wanted to highlight this because it underscores something that we don't necessarily always think about very explicitly, which is we tend to have a very mathematical approach to data. Right? One of the reasons we think of data as sort of the thing on the top is because sometime, maybe as an undergraduate, maybe in graduate school, we started learning to work with linear algebra and we started learning about matrices and things like that, and that becomes a natural way for us to think about how data are organized and structured. Coming at it from, say, a computer science or an information science perspective, that isn't the case. Right? They're not necessarily thinking about the information contained in data from a, from a purely mathematical point of view. It's, it's rather as informational content. And there are many circumstances where data that are represented like this are actually more useful than data represented in what we would think of as a standard, you know, kind of rows and columns matrix sort of form. I wanted to underscore that because it, 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 it's, um, it's something that is so fundamental to the differences between the sort of big data perspective and this kind of traditional social science way of thinking about data um, that it, it actually kind of presages a lot of, of the rest of what we're going to talk about. Um, more broadly, um, the biggest thing that big data has done for us is to radically change the way that we think about where data come from. Um, and in particular, I think the big data approach is one that is much more focused on um, finding data rather than creating data. Right? It is, it is a, data are out there in the world, and it's just a matter of kind of organizing them and collating them and turning them into something that's useful, as opposed to a more typical social science perspective, where we, we build an instrument, whether it's a survey or uh, a set of interviews or some other construct that allows us to then go out and collect data ourselves. 
And that might be data that then become public use data. It might be the, the National Election Study or the Party Manifestos Project or something like that. Um, but there's this idea that data are somehow, um, they're created rather than found. Um, and that fundamental difference gets reflected in a number of ways. So, so one thing that, that open data is, is, uh, is, well, I'll talk about each of these. Um, but, but probably the, the one that's maybe the least significant is this idea of open data in government and other kinds of official sources. Right? Um, the combination of the emphasis on, the increasing emphasis on transparency, uh, particularly in public entities, and the availability of technology to make data available and accessible in public fora has meant that there's been um, not just a, a greater availability of official data in various contexts. This is, this is for example, the World Bank data. Um, but that there's been a proliferation of tools that allow people to access those data. Um, this is a, I'm giving just one example that's a routine written in Stata that allows you to access a number of different World Bank data sets, uh, economic and public health and other sorts of things like that. Um, and it's a, it's a terrific little tool that someone built. If you've worked with World Bank data, you know it can be messy, it can be complicated to work with, and this is a, a useful sort of thing. Um, in a sense, though, this, this sort of official government data is something we've all known about for a long time. That's, that's nothing new, um, but it represents, at least the, the ascendancy of it represents kind of a subset of a larger uh, phenomenon, which is um, sort of this idea that data should be made available not just publicly and not just easily and transparently, but sort of dynamically. That data should be uh, updated in real time. That we should always have access to data that are as current as possible and so forth. Um, and the thing that's made this possible to a large degree is the development of APIs, of application programming interfaces. Um, this is a this is a, a sort of a, a dictionary definition of what an API is. The best way, from I think, from a social science data perspective, to think about it is as a portal to or a stream of data coming from some particular source on some particular topic. Um, and an API is simply a, a way of allowing those data which are sort of being updated potentially in real time to be accessed directly via the web. Um, I've got some examples, and I should say by the way that the slides themselves, there are a lot of hyperlinks hidden in these slides, and, and I'll have a, a URL up where the slides will be available uh, at the end. Um, but there are URLs here, and, and to give you kind of an idea of what this is, so um, I've got a couple different examples up here, but. But if you're familiar with, with uh, City Bike, I don't know if you know about City Bike. City Bike is uh, it's in New York City. Um, City Bank is the funder behind it. And what they've done is create a, a bike ride share program in New York with kiosks with bikes all around. This is not an uncommon thing. Um, but one of the things that they did from the very beginning was make the data from the bike share available publicly via a series of APIs. Um, and these are, these are a number of things. So if you click on the, on the link in the slide, you get something that looks like this. Uh, it just takes you to a web page, which has this, uh, which, which looks like it's a mess, but it's actually incredibly valuable. Because at the instant that you click, it pulls the data that is updated in real time. And so you can see when I, I did this this morning, uh, uh, 4.23 a.m. Eastern Time, I pulled these data. And it has every station in New York City, and the availability, its latitude, its longitude, a number of other things, and the availability of bikes and the availability of bike slots. Other APIs, you can allow you to do things like track particular bicycles. If you have a particular favorite bike, right, that are numbered, um, you can track a bicycle and where it moves around the city and things like that. Um, you can track a number of different things, all done in real time. And what that's done is it's allowed people to do things like this, right, to create applications that are web-based applications that update in real time, telling you the availability of bikes in different locations. Um, so you can, you can get on your phone and see if, you know, should I walk two blocks this way or three blocks that way to pick up a bike? Well, maybe if there aren't any available at this spot, you go the other way. Um, so this is something that is, um, that, that's sort of a radical reinterpretation, a radical change in the way that we think about data. It's no longer, here's a box of data, here's your little rectangular data set, go analyze it and learn something about the world and tell us about it. Right? It's, a, it's, a different, um, it's a different paradigm for thinking about data. Um, incidentally, the, the, a, a terrific place to start, if this interests you, is something called the programmable web, which is, a set, which is essentially a clearinghouse for APIs. Uh, public, private sector, uh, nonprofit sector, and so forth. Um, they're, they're up to almost 13,000 APIs where data of various sorts are available. And of course, it's searchable and organized into categories and things like that. Um, this is a tremendous resource for, 
finding real-time data to use for examples and things like that. The other thing, of course, that comes out of this is that, as I mentioned before, there's been a lot of development of different kinds of tools. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you here, um, I'm, for, the next, uh, for the rest of the talk, I'm going to focus a little bit on the kinds of things we can do using a software called R. You're probably familiar with R. If you're not, um, you can look into it. Um, there are a lot of different packages that allow you to sort of interface with data of this nature, both different formats of data and data made available via APIs in R. Um, so there are some general packages like rcurl and httr that allow you to, to connect to web-based data. There are also a number of data tools that have been built around specific APIs. Um, so for example, Google has a number of APIs that allow you to interface with the different kinds of things that they make available. Visualization, Google Translate has an API, uh, Google Analytics has an API that allow you not just to necessarily to pull down data, but to interchange, right? To sort of set, send data up and retrieve results back and things of that nature. And do, to do so in a way that you can then program. Uh, and of course, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and a number of others like that. Uh, the, 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 um, the R task view on web technologies has a fairly comprehensive list of these. And that's a, that's a good place to start when you're looking for these. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to, to mention this is that um, I wanted to kind of give you an idea of uh, maybe a specific example and how easy this can be. Um, and part of the reason for that is that, that um, I think maybe to a certain extent with graduate students, but, but even more so with undergraduates, um, one of the things, one of the challenges that we face is keeping them interested, keeping them involved. And, and increasingly, at least in the US, I know there's a focus on providing them with skills that will be useful in the marketplace when they go out and look for jobs. Um, and more and more, as this data science kind of perspective takes over, um, our ability to train students in ways that are useful to that uh, becomes a selling point for us, right? And that, that affects our enrollments, it affects, to be honest, our evaluations, it affects a lot of different things that are, that are potentially important to us. All right, so I wanted to give you a, a little example for what we can do with this. Um, and there's the, the R code to do this, the sort of full R code with some comments and some other things is, is also available on the GitHub site that I'll have up at the end of the, of the slides. But, um, but this is all the code you need to set up an R interface with the Twitter API. Right? This essentially lets you pull data out of the fire hose of tweets that are constantly being created, right? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands every second uh, from tw on Twitter. Um, and, and I won't go through exactly what's going on, but you essentially just have to set up a set of credentials. Uh, these long, complicated lines are just some, uh, some passcodes for a, a, a Twitter app that you've created on the Twitter site, um, which takes about two minutes and is free and very easy. Um, and then you just sort of connect to Twitter and, and create the handshake. And from there, you can do queries from Twitter, and essentially pull data from Twitter. Um, now I'm going to reveal something about myself that, that I feel comfortable doing here, but that in other contexts might get me in trouble. Um, I'm a Tottenham fan, and have been for about 15 years. And, um, and Tottenham on New Year's Day at White Hart Lane beat Chelsea 5-3, to three, uh, which, was, which is a big deal. That's a very big deal. And the hero of the game was a young man who came up through the Tottenham farm system named Harry Kane. And I was interested in sort of what the Twitter response was to Harry Kane. I believe he scored two goals and had an assist uh, and, and had a nice, sort of drew a nice foul at one point in the game. Um, and so I said, well, let's, let's use this. So this is, once you've done that initial setup, this is all you need to do. I said, let's, let's, let's start at White Hart Lane, and there are the latitude and longitude of, of White Hart Lane where Tottenham plays. And we'll look at a 10 mile radius around White Hart Lane, and we'll pull all the tweets with the word cane in them from the day before the match to the present, up to 5,000 of those. Um, and, that's, and that's all the code you need to do that. So every tweet about Kane within a 10 mile radius of White Hart Lane starting on New Year's Day to see what happens. Um, and then with one, and that, that actually gives you something that looks more or less like a, J, a JSON data set, sort of something that's kind of ugly and that we wouldn't be very familiar with, but there's a very straightforward way to turn that into a kind of standard rows and columns data set that you'd be familiar with working with. Um, once you've got those data, and it's, it has the text of the tweet, it has the location, it has the, the date and time that they were tweeted, it has the person who tweeted them, it has the number of likes, the number of retweets, the number of favorites, not likes, favorites, um, all kinds of information about those tweets themselves. 
Um, then you can treat that as you would more or less a standard data set. So you can say, well, what was the cumulative number of tweets about Harry Kane starting on, on New Year's Day, right? And it, there was a huge increase in them right around the time of the match, and then it continues and sort of flattens out a, a bit more towards the end of the day. Um, and then a, a kind of an uptick right around here when people started talking about whether Kane was going to get pulled up to the, to the English team or not. Uh, there were some comments about that. Um, we can do a, a simple little histogram and see how many times each one was retweeted. Most don't get retweeted very much at all, but one out here was retweeted 15 times. Um, you can do a word cloud of everything that was sort of in the content of those tweets. Right? Um, this is more for fun than anything you would do in reality, right? So um, Harry, obviously, Kane, obviously, but then you've got, you've got Coys in here, you've got Cahill, who was one of the unfortunate people who got beaten by Kane on a goal. Um, Chelsea, and a few other things like that. Um, incidentally, if you don't know what UD83D is, um, that's part of the code that you use in Twitter to create this emoji. <laughs> so there were some happy people in the vicinity of White Hart Lane uh, during this time period. This is, this is, by the way, this is not serious. Right? This is not serious social science that I'm doing right here. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of illustrate how easy it is to, to do, so you could do a similar sort of thing with some real phenomenon, right? If you wanted to look at what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, or what happened in Paris yesterday, or, or any, you know, any number of things like that. Um, and it wouldn't just have to be Twitter, right? It could be any number of these other sources where APIs are available. The code for doing this, because of these tools and the availability for this, is very straightforward and simple to do. Right? And, and that, in a sense, is that can become the gateway drug for a lot of our students, right? One of the things that, that we all struggle with is having things that are real examples that engage the students and that are straightforward enough for them to be able to do and to use um, that they don't get discouraged, right? that they don't just sort of give up and say, you know what, I think I want to go be an English major. A couple other things about data that I, that I wanted to mention are sort of big data. Um, one of the things that the, that the data science people, terms that they coined, um, that I absolutely love, is a phrase called data exhaust. Are you familiar with this term? Um, data exhaust is a, it's a, it's a term that describes all of the data, that all of the information or the things that you can know about something as a result of the data, about those things, that are not the data itself. So I'll give you an example of data exhaust. Right? One of the places where you can find data exhaust is in large public records. Um, this goes back to what I said earlier about some open government kinds of sources. One of the things I do with my undergraduates very early on when I'm teaching them at Penn State is I take, I, we all go to the uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of State's office and we download the data, the voter file, for Center County, Pennsylvania, where Penn State is located. Um, and we download the voter file, which has all of the voting information for every, all the registered voters in the county. So it's something like 120,000 lines of data for the voters in, in that county. And of course, I'm in there, my wife is in there, every one of the, those students' college professors is in there if they're a registered voter. And it has their name, their address, um, when they registered to vote, and then whether or not they voted in every one of the past, I think, 10 or 12 elections. And so they can find out a tremendous amount about them themselves based on this public data. And then I say, boy, that's, that's a lot of information, isn't it? But what else can you know? Right? If, you, if you go to the data file, and I'll pull up the file, and I'll find myself, and I'll say, OK, there, look, in November 2014, or November whatever it was, 4th, 3rd, um, there's an indicator. I get a 1, right? I went to the polls, and I voted that day. So what else can you know about me from that? Well, one thing you can know is that on that day, at some time between the hours of 8 AM and 8 PM, I was in the vicinity of my polling place. Right? I was in that location at that time on that day. If I, maybe uh, in response to some criminal accusation or something like that, tried to claim that, no, I was giving a lecture at Oxford that day, that data could be used against me in a court of law. Right? As an indication, a public indication, that I wasn't where I was saying I was. Right? That's the nature of data exhaust. Right? The data itself don't say that I was there, but you can infer from it that I was at the polling place on that day. And data exhaust in that sense means, um, can come from a lot of different places, right? Um, when, we, when we post on Facebook, or when we tweet, or when we do other things like this, 
we're often, we always are creating date stamps, time stamps, right? There's information related to temporal locations, if you will. Um, there's also often geographic information tied to those via geo, geotags or, or other geographic uh, indicators of where people are. Um, commercial and financial transactions often have the same effect, right? How does your credit card company know when to give you a phone call saying, what were you doing in Spartanburg, South Carolina last night? And I say, I wasn't doing anything in Spartanburg, South Carolina last night, right? Um, it's not, right, it's, it's not because of the amount that they're collecting, it's because of the location that they know uh, that, that there may be something fraudulent going on, right? Um, and finally, the, the, the part of data exhaust that I think maybe uh, gets people the most freaked out, if you will, is the idea of linkage. Right? And, and, and in particular, this, this notion that um, not just data on you, but data on what your friends and other people that you are connected to and, and identifiable connected to can be used to make inferences about what you're doing. Um, this idea that, uh, that you, can, um, you can learn about people with whom you're connected, whether it's spouses, colleagues, uh, Facebook friends, whatever it is, uh, is, is something that we often think of as data exhaust because it is information about a person that you can gain without actually knowing about the person themselves. Finally, the last thing I'll talk about with, with respect to data is the idea of crowdsourcing. Um, when we, crowdsourcing is, is usually a phrase that's used in the context of funding. Right? We think about crowdfunding or uh, you know, everyone giving a little bit to some good cause and that you, you meet some goal. Um, but of course, in the data world, crowdsourcing can also mean things like the Mechanical Turk. Right? I don't know if you're familiar with Amazon Mechanical Turk. It's essentially a way of, of paying people very small amounts of money to do very small tasks. Um, they call it artificial, artificial intelligence. Right? So it's using a hive of individuals, each doing a very small, discrete thing that is a hard thing for a computer to do, but an easy thing for a human to do, um, and then doing that on a very large scale. Um, an example of this, and this, this is also has the potential to change the way that we do statistics education. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. So a friend of mine, uh, Chuck Smith at the University of Mississippi, and I are interested in people's attitudes towards divided government in the United States. Um, and one of the things that, that we often want to know is, well, how do people, are people really willing to go out and vote for a divided government? Is there a group of people who, who purposefully, if they think that the presidency is going to be held by a Democrat, will vote for a Republican to serve in the House or the Senate, and vice versa. Right? They have active preferences for having divided government in the United States. And we wanted, to, we wanted to test this, and so we developed, uh, based on something that Chuck did earlier, we built a, a questionnaire, we tried to build a questionnaire, and the idea is to sort of ask people, um, who would you vote for, for president, if you knew the Congress was held by the Democrats or the Republicans? Or conversely, who would you vote for for Congress if you knew the presidency was held by the Democrats or the Republicans? And so we wanted to ask sort of, who would you vote for for Congress with no condition? And then Congress, given that the executive is Democratic, Congress, given that the executive is Republican, and then flip it around and ask the same thing for the executive vis-a-vis -vis the Congress. And we wanted to randomize over all those conditions. Right? So we wanted to sort of send people down one branch or the other randomly, and then, or down each of the branches randomly, and we wanted to randomize the order in which they were asked. And so uh, this is a complicated sort of thing to do, or somewhat complicated. Uh, it's a survey experiment. Um, and 15 or 20 years ago, it would have involved writing up a big NSF grant and asking for lots and lots of money and hiring graduate students and getting on the phone and calling people. Um, and instead, we combined a Qualtrics uh, online survey with Mechanical Turk as sort of a proof of concept. And we, so we, we built a 25-question survey that asked the questions we wanted plus a battery of demographics. We tested it out. It took about 10 minutes to answer the survey. And we put it up on Mechanical Turk, and we said we would pay people 22 cents if they would answer this 10-minute survey. That seems like a bad deal, doesn't it? And yet, within a week, we had 703 respondents to that survey at a cost of about 150 US dollars. Okay. Now, mind you, the people who answer surveys on Mechanical Turk are very different from the general population, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But just the idea that you could do something as complicated as what we were doing with this survey experiment and have 700 respondents in a week for less money than a nice dinner out in New York City 
um, is remarkable. Right? It's, it's a complete change in the way that we do things. And, and in a sense, it, it opens up an opportunity on the pedagogical side, perhaps even more than on the research side. Right? So, so why would you want to do something like this? So I would argue there are a ton of benefits. Um, um, one of the things that we, we do, and I'm going to come to this a little bit later in my talk, is we, when we're teaching quantitative methods, we're, we're sort of teaching the whole thing, aren't we? I mean, you can't teach people how to do a chi-square test or run a regression without kind of understanding what's behind going on. How are the measures created? And then a step back from that, how are the concepts arrived at? What's the theory that it comes from? We try to do all of that. And one of the problems we often face is that it's very difficult to sort of walk students all the way through what looks like a real research process, from the ideas, to the concepts, to the measures, to the actual data collection, to the analysis. Um, one of the reasons that's traditionally been hard is that we can teach all of the stuff at the front end, but then at the end of the day, when we actually go out and collect data, we have to make do with sort of second best options. Right? We have to say, well, yeah, we'd like to do a big survey, but instead, why don't you just go, and go, go back to your room and ask your roommate, and then come back with the answers, and we'll have a data set of 30 or 40 respondents. Right? At the end of the day, we can do some kind of toy analysis. Um, Using something like this allows you to design something that's arbitrarily complicated uh, in terms of experimental conditions, things of that nature. Um, and so you can, you can start, you can work sort of all the way through from theory to, to the actual analysis um, with the students having hands-on experience doing it all the way along. And at the end, they get something that's sort of real, right? They, instead, of, instead of 30 respondents, they might have seven or 800 respondents. Um, and they can actually, when they run those regressions or look at those t-tests, they might actually find something, right? Uh, that's, that's, um, that's important, right? If you're trying to convince students that this is valuable, that their ideas are potentially right, and then you do the analysis and you've got 25 or 30 respondents and you know you don't have enough power to be able to say anything like that, um, at the end of the day, they're not going to be very satisfied, right? Uh, with, with, oh, nothing is statistically differentiable from zero, sorry. Right? Um, and the last bit, um, this is sort of like what I think of as kind of the, um, kind of the, it's not, a, it's not a bug, it's a feature of mTurk, right? Um, we've known for, for several years now that the respondents to surveys, in particular political surveys that are on mTurk, do look quite different from the general population in the United States and frankly worldwide. Um, within the US, uh, they tend to be more democratic Politically, they tend to be whiter than the population. They tend to have a lot of other demographic characteristics. They tend to be younger and so forth, uh, poorer. And, um, and if you're going to use MTurk to do sort of real social science research, that's an issue. But from a pedagogical perspective, it gives you the opportunity, once you've done something like this, and maybe you've spent $100 on the survey or something, right, um, to then ask the students, well, okay, now let's look at our sample. Let's, let's see how it is different from what we know the population looks like. And let's think carefully about how that might affect the inferences that we're able to draw. Right? And so you can ask questions like, why is this sample different? Why would we expect them to be, why, why are they more white and younger and poorer and more democratic? Um, and then what would that mean, right? If we had to guess about the effect, if we did this survey with a real national probability sample, what would we expect to see? How would it be different? And why would it be different? Right? And so you can use the fact that an MTurk sample is actually a rotten sample from a survey perspective as a learning tool. Right? And, and you, can, you can make that a, a feature of the, of the process. Now this actually gets to the second part of my talk, which is about tools. And, and once we have these data, what do we do with them? Particularly with undergraduates, I tend to, to, to start on the very first day of teaching um, with a, a question of, you know, what do we, what do we want to do with data? If you're going to learn quantitative methods, at the end of the day, you're, 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 you're doing something with data. What, do, what is it that we want to accomplish with data? And the way, at least I present it, and I think the way we tend to think about it is that there are three broad classes of things that we can do with data. Um, we can describe the world. We can explain some phenomena, something that's happening, and we can predict. And those are th more or less everything we do falls into one or more of those three categories. And in a perfect world, we'd like to think that all three of those things are sort of equally valuable. 
Right? We, each one of them needs the other to exist. Um, and we probably shouldn't necessarily, at least without knowing what we're talking about, privilege one over the other. And yet, when we then move past that first day, and we actually start teaching the students, we start um, doing what we're supposed to be doing in that class, the reality is inevitably quite different. Right? What do we do? We focus on explanation. We do a little bit on description, you know, almost because we have to. Right? You have to talk about univariate statistics before you can talk about bivariate statistics. They have to understand variation before they can understand covariation. And so we inevitably do a little nod in the direction of description. But then we move very quickly to explanation. Right? And we focus on multivariate analysis. We talk about you know, why would we expect this to be related to that. Uh, and we do that, I think, partly just because that's what we're typically interested in ourselves. It makes the, the class more interesting and more tolerable for us. Um, partly because we're projecting onto our students that that's what they are going to be interested in, and we may well be right about that. But I think the result is, is twofold. Number one, um, we wind up privileging explanation as a thing to do with data over the other two, and in particular over prediction, um, which at least for undergraduate classes and economics may be a little bit different, but among the social sciences, there's very little emphasis on prediction when teaching undergraduates, typically. Um, and so we end up privileging explanation in ways that we aren't always conscious of. And simultaneously, we're, we're probably, in the current environment, doing our students very much of a disservice there. And the reason for that is that, again, think, come back to this, to this big data perspective. Um, the people who work in this sort of data science or big data paradigm don't do this, right? The focus in the big data world is arguably even more on description and prediction than it is on explanation. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little more in a bit, but, um, but I would argue that, that one of the things that a big data perspective does is that it brings a little more balance to these three things in terms of the way that we think about what we can learn from data. Um, and it doesn't lead to description and especially prediction, winding up with this kind of second-class citizen status in, in what we teach. And so to that end, I want to I talk about what we can kind of pull from this big data paradigm that will maybe bring a little bit more balance to the way that we address uh, description and prediction in what we do. I'm, I'm not going to talk much about explanation because I think we're all good at that. Right? We're, that's, that's where our focus is anyway. And so I want to focus on the other two. Um, one of the other things that, that, uh, that the big data perspective uh, sort of brings is, uh, and this has been true in the social sciences recently as well, is, um, is a greater focus on visual, visualization right, and graphical presentations of data as opposed to tabular or other presentations of data. Um, that's a very natural thing for someone from coming out of this paradigm to want to do. Um, ta you could, you know, tables, who's looking at tables, right? Those are just numbers. Um, one of the things that we've, well, a number of the things that we've, we've known for a long time is that people like pictures, right? There's, there's that old adage about what the exchange rate is between pictures and words. Um, if anything, that's probably underestimating that ratio a little bit. Um, uh, and, and increasingly so as we do more and more kind of psychological studies that show what people are good at, how we're good at taking in information and how we're bad at taking in information. Um, People like pictures. If they like pictures, they, they have an even stronger like for a particular kind of picture. They love maps. Um, great advice for any PhD students here in the audience. If there is any way that you can ever work a map, particularly a map of a location relevant to your audience, into a talk, you should really try to do so. Um, people really are drawn to maps. And every talk that I've ever given that has had a map, at the end of the talk, the first hand that goes up said, could you go back to the map? They wanted to see something, right? Because they grew up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And they want to see, you know, Kenosha looks sort of funny, and they don't remember that. Um, people love maps. And of course, one of the other advantages that, that we, to the world we live in now is that drawing pictures and, and making maps has become much easier than it was before. We're not, we don't need a cartographer and a drafting table and a bunch of expensive pens to draw a really nice looking map or anything like that. It's, um, so, so, so with respect to, um, with respect to pictures, um, one of the things that, that this kind of data science perspective does is, um, is it, it brings more of a focus on visualization as a tool for describing data 
that goes beyond what we think of as the very simple ways of doing this. I have a group of colleagues uh, at, at something called the GeoVista Center at Penn State. Um, GeoVista is uh, it's, it's affiliated with the geography department at Penn State. And, um, and there's a group of people there, um, um, well, primarily geographers and computer scientists, um, who have a kind of a radical idea, which is that uh, we essentially don't need to do statistics anymore that sufficiently complex, um, you know, sort of properly constructed graphical methods can, can teach us, or we can learn from data by looking at pictures. If we draw the right pictures, we can learn as much from looking at pictures as we can from fitting regressions and doing other things of, of a statistical nature. Um, and, and there's something of an appeal to that, right? I mean, at the end of the day, any sort of multivariate analysis um, is, is doing, you know, it's, it's conditioning on certain things, well we can do that graphically, right? It's combining information, it's data reduction, it's reducing information from large numbers of, of indicators to smaller numbers, right? That's multivariate statistics. Again, that's the kind of thing we can do graphically, we can see graphically. Um, and as I said, they're, they're, on the one hand, they're very, um, they're a little bit dogmatic about this, they're, they're a little crazy. Um, but it's good to have crazy people working on things that are maybe fundamentally right, if not right to the same extreme that, that people think they are. Um, and, and, they're, and one of the things that they've done that I think has been very clever is that they've, they've actually enlisted um, colleagues who are cognitive psychologists. Right? So they're, they're thinking very creatively, not just about how to build better graphics, but how to see what's better. How to, how to know what constitutes a better graphic right? when it comes to, to human perception. Um, Again, these are, these are also, they're, and they're developing tools that will allow you to do this, right? So, so when I teach my students about graphics, yeah, they need to know about histograms and scatter plots and things, but there are, there's a lot beyond that that they can do too that's a lot more complicated. Um, the GeoVista people are doing the same thing with respect to maps, and one of the things there, um, because they understand the value of maps, is, is to kind of try to think about maps in a higher dimensional sort of way. Right? So this is, a, this is actually a, a map of um, cervical cancer mortality. Right? And the colors tell you cervical cancer mortality. But this particular PhD student is interested in how to represent uncertainty or reliability visually. And how to do so while also retaining your ability to present the quantities that you're interested in. And so she's, this was actually from her first year in graduate school. And the idea is to use sort of the darkness of the shading to represent the uncertainty. Right? So any, the dark areas are where there's low certainty and the brighter areas are high certainty. And then the colors reflect the, de the degree of the phenomenon, right? So you're essentially getting, um, you're getting four, right? You're getting latitude, longitude, rates, and if you will, standard errors, right? Or something with confidence errors, all in the same plot, right? um, And it's a map, so everybody's gonna be looking for, you know, where they grew up on it or something like that. So the synthesis on visualization, in other words, and the, and the development of tools for visualization is something that I think this perspective um, has, I don't want to say it's brought it to, to the social sciences, um, but in many respects the people in, in data science have gone much farther with it uh, than, than a lot of us uh, here in this room have. And there's a lot we can learn from that. Um, and then there's prediction. So one of the, um, one of the things that, that big data has done for a very long time is have a very strong emphasis on prediction. Um, and there are a number of reasons for this, right? Um, more so than, than other kinds of, of ways of approaching data, the, the big data revolution, if you want to call it that, um, started as much in the private sector as it did in government and the academy. Um, and, as, and as a consequence of that, there was a, a real interest from the very beginning in using the sorts of data and using tools to, well, let's be honest, make money. Right? To, to know what's going to happen tomorrow. To be able to do something quicker and better and faster than, than your competition can. Um, and to, to sort of develop intelligence on that front. And so prediction has, in a sense, been at the core of what's been going on in big data from the very beginning. Um, and, and one of the opportunities or one of the advantages, a number of advantages come out of this, right? So um, to the extent that we teach prediction to undergraduates in a conventional paradigm, um, we're inevitably left at a little bit of a loss, right? Um, if you want to predict something, then it helps if you don't know what the actual outcome is going to be to begin with, right? That is, post-diction is just sort of intrinsically less interesting and less impressive. Um, now, in the U.S., we're fortunate. I know Steve does work, we were talking last night at dinner, Steve does work on, on uh, British elections and, and other elections. 
Uh, in the US, we have the advantage that we know when our elections are coming, right? And so, um, so every, every two years with, with the Congress and every four years with the presidency, people design an entire course around predicting what's going to happen. And because the course starts at the end of August and the election is the first week of November, you can teach students enough in between that they can make a real prediction you know, the night before the election, and then they can come back in a few days later and see how well they did. Right? And that's a wonderful thing. You don't have that advantage in some parliamentary systems and so forth. But even that is a relatively rare phenomenon. Right? Um, historically, we haven't had the ability to, to do that, or if we have, it's been unusual. Um, the kinds of data changes, and I would argue advances that I talked about before, allows for sort of real-time out-of-sample predictions. Right. So, for example, um, if I wanted to make a prediction about the rates at which people tweet about Harry Kane, the soccer football player that I mentioned earlier, um, I could build an entire model around that. And I could expect that they would go up on Saturdays or Sundays, depending on when Tottenham was playing, and then they'd drop off during the rest of the week, and I could say, you know, they'll go up during the match and maybe a little bit afterwards, and I could, there'd be a cyclicality to it and so forth. And I could develop a little predictive model over a series of weeks, but then I could test it like Saturday. Right? I could predict on Friday and see what happened on Saturday and see how far I was off. Right? And, and, and I would know immediately. Right? Pulling the data is trivial. Um, and so there are some advantages to this sort of real-time availability, this dynamic availability of data, when it comes to being able to teach prediction and things like that. Of course, you can always do cross-validation, right? and this is the, the idea of, of uh, sort of working with existing data to, to address predictive, uh, predictive validity is something that, that we've known to do for a long time, but it's gotten more traction sort of in the, in the, um, in the big data era. Um, the other thing I'll mention, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with Kaggle, and there are other uh, similar operations like it. Um, Kaggle is a, is a site that, um, it sort of uh, instantiates this idea that, that uh, data science is a competitive enterprise. Okay. Um, this, this arguably started, or at least most famously started, with something a few years ago called the Netflix Challenge, where Netflix made a large amount of their internal data about who rents what movies and who rates them highly and, and badly available. And they said, we would like to develop a model that allows us to decide who likes what movies. And we're putting public data, we're putting data out in the public, and we need you to hit a target. And the first person or team that can hit a target wins a million dollars. And the target was out of sample predictive validity. Right? You had to get a certain percentage of predictions right. Or it was in a mean squared error kind of way. Um, and people worked on this, I think, for about a year, maybe 18 months, and finally, uh, I think it was a guy, I don't even think it was a team, um, won the Netflix prize, got a million dollars from Netflix in exchange for turning over his algorithm to predict who likes movies. Now Netflix made far more than a million dollars on that algorithm, right? Because they use that algorithm to suggest movies to people when they go online or when they're on their phone or when they're, when they're trying to stream or something like that. So it was worth every penny for Netflix. But this idea of building um, models that allow people to compete and to do so specifically with the target being some sort of predictive index, right? The objective function is how well can you predict some phenomenon is something that, that sort of has a, it now has this thing, Kaggle essentially is a, is a place where you can go and do this. And so you can go to Kaggle and you can join a competition, you can sign up and compete with other individuals or teams to sort of be the best at predicting something. Um, you can put a competition up on Kaggle. But I think pedagogically, the, the other thing about this is, and, and we do relatively little of this, is that we often don't, maybe because we don't necessarily think of what we do as a predictive enterprise, we often also don't think of it as a competitive enterprise. Right? We rarely pit our students against each other in competitions when we're teaching them methods. Maybe we should. Right? Maybe that's something that, that we can learn from this, this way of thinking about data analysis. Um, and, and I have colleagues, by the way, who disagree vehemently over this question. Um, my, my old colleague, Phil Schrote, who some of you may know, um, I could not be farther apart on this. I, I sort of love the Kaggle idea. He thinks it's terrible and it undermines collegiality, and he would never ever do it in a million years. Um, that's perfectly fine, right? It's, it's, it's certainly reasonable to have different perspectives on it. But again, it's something that, that this big data kind of perspective brings to the table that we haven't historically done. Now, again, prediction has some, there are some challenges to, to doing more with prediction than what we do. Right? One of the problems with prediction is that in order to get to prediction, it's, it's, it is, 
it is by necessity the last of the things that we do with data. Right? You, have to, you have to be able to sort of work with the data, to understand the data, you have to, you have, to have already gone through description and arguably through explanation, maybe, to get to the prediction part. Um, and one of the things, as you probably are all aware, that, that typically happens is we simply run out of time. Right? There's only so much you can do at the end of the day in a, in a semester or a term's worth of, of course material. Um, and so getting to prediction and not making it sort of the thing that inevitably gets cut at the end because we got behind our, where our syllabus that we were supposed to be um, is, is inevitably a challenge. Um, another issue is, is uncertainty, right? As, as what I saw with the map uh, a minute ago. Um, predictability, by, predictability by itself um, isn't necessarily everything we need to convey. Right? If you're teaching people how to do predictions and not teaching them about the uncertainty surrounding those predictions, then you're committing methodological malpractice in my book. But of course, right at the time when you have the least amount of time and, are, and maybe the least amount of student interest and energy, you're introducing another thing that you've got to bring to the table. And so that, that contributes to the sort of the, the, the timing challenge. Finally, this is something specific to Kaggle. Um, one of the things that the success of Kaggle has done is created sort of a de facto arms race in the predictive sphere. Um, so, so if you are interested in competing, like really competing, in a Kaggle competition, um, it's likely that the approach you're going to use is some sort of ensemble of a lot of different approaches that might include singular value decompositions and random forests and you know, different kinds of multi-level models and, and you're going to combine predictions from all these different sorts of things and you're going to have some sort of repeating optimization of the weights over those predictions as you're combining them. And as you can imagine, what I just described is not something that your undergraduates are going to be doing at the end of a one semester class. And so, inevitably, if, if you throw them into the wolves of Kaggle, they're probably not going to be competing on the level with, you know, this is, this is like throwing a 13-year-old into a, a Premier League match or something like that, right? And they're just, they're just not going to be up to speed with everything else that's on there. Um, and, and that can be discouraging. You know, frankly, the last thing we need is, is to figure out some way to further discourage students in quantitative methods classes. And so it's something that we need to be aware of. And I, I, tend to, I tend to keep my competitions internal rather than take them out to Kaggle largely for that reason. Let's talk about tools and, and about sort of the emphasis on, on visualization and description and on prediction um, kind of actually underscores uh, a, maybe a bigger thing. Uh, the, the, it's the last topic that I want to talk about, which is the way that this different perspective, this, this big data perspective, um, approaches what we do. And the, the general philosophy towards data, towards tools, towards learning about the world from quantitative data um, is quite different from what we're, we're typically used to seeing. Um, and I would argue that that difference um, can teach us something about the way that we think about theory. When we teach methods, it's my opinion, when we teach methods, um, what we're essentially teaching is translation. The, the most important thing, in my opinion, that most students can walk out of our classes with is an ability to take an idea, a hypothesis or uh, a theory or something about a relationship or something like that, and to turn it into something that they can test empirically, and in the case of quantitative methods, to test quantitatively, to learn about the world from quantitative data in the context of a particular idea that they have. And that translation from I've got an idea to learning about the world through quantitative data that's, that's where our value is at. That's what we do. Um, we have to teach them statistics, we have to teach them data, we have to teach them a little bit of programming, we have to do a lot of things. But at the end of the day, the big goal is to enable them to do that that I just described. And so in a sense, when we're teaching them methods, we're inevitably teaching them something about how to theorize. By prioritizing certain perspectives, certain techniques, and so forth, we're privileging certain ways of thinking about the world, and theorizing about the world. One of the more provocative pieces that has come out in the big data world in the last uh, couple of years was a piece that was in The Economist uh, a couple of years ago now uh, called Big Data and the Death of the Theorist. Uh, some of you might have seen this. Um, if not, you should go read it. It's interesting. Um, so the, the, the central premise of the piece is that with enough data, we don't really need theories anymore. Right? That once upon a time, I'll, I'll say, 
I know, I know a little bit about electoral behavior, so I'll use that as an example. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm going to use the US context because I've embarrassed myself trying to talk about Great Britain. Um, so in the US context, if you wanted to know something like, um, there is a, there is, there's a Latino female who went to Brooklyn College, but then got into University of Pennsylvania Law School. And now she's a partner at Jones Day in Philadelphia. And she makes $475,000 a year. She's married. Um, she's a registered independent. Uh, and she has two children in elementary school. She's 44 years old. And she can vote for Romney or she can vote for Obama. Who's she going to vote for? Well, the female part and the Latino part and going to Brooklyn College as an undergrad part um, probably says Obama. And the incredibly rich, successful lawyer with a husband and a family probably says Romney. Once upon a time, the way that you would think about that, and this is, again, I'm trying to illustrate the premise of the piece here. Once upon a time, the premise, the, the way you would think about that case would be to say, well, we have theories that, that explain to us why women tend to be more liberal than men, and why Latinos tend to be more liberal than whites, and so forth. And we would do some sort of mental calculus over all those theories to come up with something. Stegman's idea in the big data piece is, you know what? Once upon a time, we had to do that because this individual was sort of a counterfactual. But with enough data, we could actually find enough people who were 44-year-old Latino married with two kids lawyers in Philadelphia, and we could just calculate an average. And that would be our best guess. Right? That is, if we had data on literally every single person and who they were going to vote for, we wouldn't need to do all this theorizing. That eventually enough data eliminates the need for thinking theoretically about sort of these kinds of social phenomena. As I said, it's pretty provocative. Um, also probably wrong. In fact, it's almost certainly wrong. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not useful. So, so the, initial, um, the initial response, or sort of the initial counter-argument that most of the people that I knew in the social sciences had was to say, that can't possibly be right. Oh, and here's why. Right? Um, one, one very common example of that was, you know, we still need to know enough about the phenomenon we're interested in. We still need to theorize enough to know what data to look at. Right? If you want to know about US electoral behavior, then you don't need to collect data on sunspots. Why not? If you don't have any theory at all, sunspots might be relevant, so collect the data. Right? But probably not. Right? So at some level, there has to be some theory back there somewhere. Of course, that's a bit of a question-begging response, because as we all know, the places where those theories come from is inevitably some sort of data. Right? So there's something like a dialectic going on there. Um, but that doesn't necessarily undermine the fact that, that, that some sort of understanding, theoretical or otherwise, whatever you want to call it, is, is always going to be crucial to what we do. Simply, for no other reason than to just allow us to decide what is and is not the relevant data that we're then going to mine for our insights. I think a more valuable way of thinking about this is to, is to think about what that depth of theory sort of perspective implies for what big data can teach us. So, as I've tried to convey over the course of the last hour or so, um, one of the things that, that the big data take has is the power of description. Right? The, 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 the premise of the, of the death, of, uh, death of theory piece is that, um, again, if you have enough data, you can just calculate an average for whatever subgroup you want to do. Right? That fundamentally, we can just do descriptive statistics. And we can do them over and over again and with enough data. That will be enough to understand the world. So again, description, right? This is no longer privileging explanation over description. Um, <clears throat> similarly, this idea that we don't need to theorize um, because the data will tell us everything we need to know is a much more inductive way of thinking about how we learn from data than what we typically teach, right? The model for teaching social science students is usually you've got a theory, right? Theory is first. Right? Where do our theories come from? I don't know, they come from they come from Weber, or they come from Lipset, or they come from this or that famous person, or they spring fully formed from our brains. They come from all sorts of different places. Maybe they come from data. 
don't talk about that so much, right? But, but they come from somewhere. And then you start with theory, and you go theory, conceptualization, operationalization, measurement, and you walk right through that. And that, that whole deductive way of doing social science with quantitative data sort of dominates the way, or dominates our pedagogy, particularly with undergraduates, arguably with graduate students too. Um, this flips that on its head. It says, let's start with the data, a lot of data, on all kinds of things, and then let's start looking for patterns, and let's look at subgroups, and let's just kind of extract information from the data, and let's see where that takes us. So again, a much more inductive way of, of sort of approaching the whole enterprise. Finally, I think it, the combination of these things um, has implications for the way that we borrow is the nice term, the, the arbitrage opportunities across disciplines. Um, social sciences don't do much that's original. Um, we learn a lot from people in fields like biology, ecology, computer science, mathematics, engineering, you know, statistics, on and on and on, right? all sorts of different other fields. Um, we inherently borrow. It's, it's, the, it's uh, sort of the core of what we do. Um, and historically, the fields that we have borrowed from um, have both shaped and been shaped by the way that we think about the enterprise that we conduct, right? how we do empirical analysis, how we learn from data. If we change the way that we learn from data, then of necessity we should probably change our borrowing habits. Right? Um, ecology is a good example. Early social scientists thought in a very ecological way about human systems, the way that ecologists think about natural systems. Um, and we borrowed a lot from ecologists, and ecologists were very deductive in what they did. Um, biologists, too, at that point. Um, maybe we would borrow less from those fields. Maybe we would borrow more from engineers um, or people in computer science. Um, people in other fields where a much more inductive approach is, is more commonplace. Maybe we can learn more with, from those other fields in ways that we didn't necessarily think we could uh, prior to today. If you're old like me, you remember this, right? This was a, this was a late '80s, I think, uh, marketing campaign for Apple. Um, one of the one of their earliest ones that was actually successful, right? And uh, and, it, and it, I don't know how many they they did this on purpose, right? Of course, because it's it's meant to have a double meaning. One of which is sort of grammatically awful, and if you're a grammar Nazi like I am, it, it really makes you crazy to see this. Um, but maybe if if, if you know. 25 years ago, the motto for Apple was think different, then maybe if we, uh, that's, that's the Hadoop elephant, right? That's the, uh, the elephant symbol that's associated with Hadoop uh, cluster software. Uh, maybe the, the big data analog is to theorize different. The way we do theory is going to be different. Um, not necessarily the way we think, but the way we theorize is, is going to be made different by the developments in the, in the big data world. Which then leads to the, the question of action, right? The prescriptive uh, part of, of my talk. Um, what might we do differently? And, and I won't claim, by the way, that I'm already doing all of this. I'm still working on integrating all of this into, into the things that I do because, to be honest, anyone who's been at this for a while will tell you that um, it's very easy to keep teaching the same thing that you prepared two or five or ten years ago. Um, so there are always transaction costs involved. But um, one thing that I try to do all the time is to, is to, to try to, to to, to learn new stuff, and, and, and sometimes to try to learn things that, that aren't necessarily in my comfort zone or that aren't natural things to learn. Um, so I started learning Perl, and then I switched to Python, and, and different data formats, but things that are, that are maybe kind of a little bit outside of people's comfort zones. Um, I think teaching a little bit of programming is useful. Um, I have colleagues who are more adamant about this than I am. Um, but when I say programming, I mean um, not just sort of let's write a script to do something in Stata or R instead of doing it at the command line. I'm talking about actually creating programs that, that cause the computer to do something that it wouldn't otherwise do. Right? And, and basic programming skills, um, partly for simple practical reasons, but also because they're, they're, um, they're useful for addressing the kinds of things we want to address. Um, are things that we don't really integrate into our pedagogy as much as we probably should. Um, and then the, the, the remainders are sort of things that I've already touched upon, right? So a little bit more of an emphasis on visualization, on description, and, and privileging description a little bit more. Um, and, and the idea that, that 
data analysis isn't necessarily incommensurable with just exploration of data. Right? That, that the old, uh, the, the old the, in, the, in the world that I live in now, data mining is not a pejorative term. It's something people do. Um, and it's a very respectable sort of operation for most people. Um, for a long time in the social sciences, it was, uh, had an odor about it. Right? Uh, but, it's, um, but it's actually, if you're clear that, you're, that that's what you're doing, then there aren't necessarily problems with it. Um, greater attention to prediction, both for the value that, that the students might get from it, but also just to sort of provide a little bit of balance in, in what we focus on. Um, and finally, maybe um, thinking a little bit differently about how we theorize about social phenomena. Um, and here I say, you know, a little more induction, a little more willingness to let the data teach us rather than imposing a will on the data. This is, you know, that's the way we typically do this. Um, and, and a little more humility. You know, one of the, one of the things I tell our graduate students, um, usually when I, when I start teaching them, uh, when I teach the first course in, the, in our PhD sequence, is that you have to know, you have to develop the skill to know when the data know more about the thing you're interested in than you do. Right? When, the, when the data are telling you something and your theory isn't consistent with it and you're sort of refusing to believe it, at some point you need to stop. You need, the data are, the data are they're telling you something and you need to listen to them. Um, and that, that, the humility to do that and to sort of be wrong and be corrected um, is something that I think is, is also part and parcel of this, uh, this bigger perspective. Um, and I think it's useful. So uh, thank you for this opportunity to talk to all of you. Um, the material, the slides, and also a little bit of R code for doing some of the things that I did up here are on my GitHub site in a, in a repository, so you can go find it. Um, and of course, as I said, there are a bunch of active links in the slides as well, and I'd encourage you to explore those. So thank you.